Hi, and welcome to the Carrier's Edge podcast number 10. And I am Jane Jezrawi, one of the co-founders of Carrier's Edge. And with me, as always, is... Mark Morell, the other co-founder of Carrier's Edge. Hello. Hello. And speaking like this because we've been watching The Crown. We've been binge watching The Crown on Netflix. <laughs> so much smoking. Yes. Holy so moly. Much, so much formal British pageantry. And smoking. <laughs> Those people smoked. And quite a bit of drunk driving in the last episode as well. There was drunk driving, yes. yes. These the, royals and the I craziness know. that they get up to. But it's not true. Like, even though it's supposed to be uh, the, it's not really based loosely on Elizabeth II when she was young. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily all true all the time, although they have major events seem to take place at around the same time that they took in real life. A fictionalized retelling of real events. It is. <laughs> that is what we've come to. It's yes. a fictionalized retelling of real events. But it's good. It's well Oh, done. it's riveting. It's quite good. We just watched the one about how the London smog of 52 came and poisoned like 12,000 people. Yeah, and, and Jane they, was having breathing problems just yeah, the whole thing, just watching it. I have a cold, and yeah, so it's really hard to watch it without your chest hurting. And also, the uh, her father, George the Sixth. Yeah, I think so. Who died of uh, basically lung had a yeah had a lung removed, and then oh yeah. But yet they all smoke up until the day they die, and they'll live long too. Well, yeah. maybe not I George say the Sixth. Well, his mother did. Yeah. And the smoking in bed and like smoking right up until the the uh, very day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then people come and sit beside the body or as she's uh, on her way out to sit there as she's about to pass and smoke right beside her. Well, they, so gave her a, or they gave her, her a cigarette. Yeah, her son gave her a cigarette. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So we are feeling the need to just cleanse our lungs as a result. <laughs> There's a lot of coughing that happened after that. So we'll have to do some expert editing to make sure that all of our sympathetic coughs, just thinking about this, I don't swear, come every in the time, final version. Every time that we do one of these things, I think I'm losing my voice, voice or in the process of already having lost my voice and... I think you're just perpetually in a state of losing your voice. Yeah, I think that's a problem. Well, it's also spring, and so we've got allergy stuff happening, and I'm feeling more of that. But that's still a good thing because that means it's spring. Yes. And the and two and weeks and until our pool gets open, so yes. that's exciting. Uh, we're very happy about that. But we do have some work stuff to discuss. What? Yes. Ugh. We have some exciting things to talk about. Recent adventures for both of us. Your recent adventures on accident scene <laughs> uh, investigation, my recent adventures uh, organizing our all of our development efforts um, and uh, project teams and tracking software for that. Uh, we're going to discuss some different types of learning that came out of a discussion I had with somebody, and we'll review some upcoming events. Lots of excitement, we think, or lots of horribly boring things. We'll only know when we're done. So getting uh, to the uh, what's been happening recently, so we came back from the TCA convention at the end of March, and we're like, okay, we've got that out of the way. Now it's time to get to work. Well, we that's get- what you did. I was like, okay, can we have a rest? Actually, I think I got sick immediately afterwards, so... Yes, but spiritually, you're spiritually, recharged I and w- ready to go. Yeah, I guess. So you you dove into a new course. I uh, did. I dove into some in- internal administration things. Uh, so let's start by uh, just recapping the adventure that you've had over the last few weeks with uh, your new course. Uh, there really hasn't been all that much adventure. It's pretty straightforward well, what you have to do. Well, there was one thing that was driving me crazy. And I'll point out, there's been any number of things that have been driving her crazy that have been adventures for her. She's being way too, I don't know, um, delicate here. I guess, okay, the overreaching thing that I always find a problem is figuring out what order... Overarching, you mean. What do I say? Overreaching. Overreach. <laughs> In my head, it was overarching. That's, that's what we want for our courses, overreach. Yeah, that's Tremendous what, overreach. That's what editing is for. See, when I speak, I can't edit, and I'm, I think my head is going faster than my mouth. So 
the overarching thing that I, and I have this in a lot of courses, is that I don't know what order to put things in. And that's, well, we've talked about it, is putting things in the correct order is always, always makes a course much more understandable and much better. And it's always a challenge, and especially when you have never done it before. So I have all this material that I'm working from that basically has 10 steps to take if you have an accident or at the accident scene, but they're not in the same order. Mm. <laughs> like, so, well, you know, okay, would I use this order or do I use this order? Or which is the first thing that I know is the most important thing is to put out your warning signals, whatever you're using, your flares or uh, reflective triangles. It's not the first thing. It may be maybe one of the more important things. But that was one of the challenges is figuring out what order do you do all of those things. Every, every source of information that you had, uh, whether it was from official sources or from different partners or uh, people that had written articles, they were all different, right? No, the first thing about, well, see, this is where it gets kind of weird, is if you know that somebody's injured, do you go see if they're okay and call 911 or do you put out your warning signals first i i am going to go with the if there's a major fire or there's a huge spill i imagine that you're going to get your warning signals out pretty quick cuz you're going to want people to stay away um it may be that you you tend to the problem first if it's like a huge emergency cuz you've got 10 minutes to get them out so, but I'm going with the, let's put the warning signals out. And this is after, uh, technically, the first thing you should do is basically go, okay, I've been in an accident. Okay, calm down and figure out what, you know, what am I supposed to do? What's going on here? Okay, where do I have my accident? You know, where is it? Where, is it? where are all these things that I have to do? What is the order that I do them in? So you have to collect yourself first. And then put out your warning signals. But that wasn't the only, um, that wasn't what I was thinking of when I, oh, the, what I had a problem with, and I actually asked a couple of our insurance partners, and I think one of them asked someone else, because it wasn't overly clear, but we're um, using the FMCSA regulations, which has very clear uh, guidelines for where you put them. And in Canada, they're roughly the same, but not as stringent. So it's kind of 100 feet behind, 100 feet in front of, and 10 feet uh, sort of on the traffic side of the highway. But what was kind of concerning was, okay, if you're in an accident, do you put it 100 feet in front of the accident? Or do you put it in front of in 100 feet in front of the vehicle, like Just your, your truck? Vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where does it measure from? It measures from the like from what I gather, it measures from the truck. But I think that it's I don't know, that doesn't seem right. It seems like it should be from the scene of the accident, but there's no there's nothing that I can find that says anything about the scene of the accident because I don't know. I guess nobody sort of considered it. The regulation doesn't say? Nope. <laughs> you gotta love it when there's regulations that don't actually clarify what you're supposed to do. Well, it is for any stop, right? So the regulations are for anytime you're stopped on the side of the road for more than 10 minutes, you got to put out these warning signals. And that's fine. And that's one part. Of, and this is the same thing in Canada. That's where they're putting that information is kind of in the sort of regular driving um, regulations. But this is in the, in the case of an accident, and people don't really say it, what to do in the case of an accident in terms of warning signals. There's no separate section. There's no, um, there's no specific guidelines for an accident. So it really has come down to insurance companies. The insurance companies are, have lots of information about that. It kind of sounds like one of those things... Almost like uh, what people do with cargo securement, where the, nobody really knows. Like there's so many people who don't really understand how they're supposed to be doing their tie downs that they just play it safe and they end up using way more than they need. So in this case, they play it safe. And uh, if 100 feet is the minimum, uh, 100 feet from your vehicle or 100 feet from the edge of the uh, 
of the accident scene, well, they take it uh, safe and they'll go whichever is uh, err on the side of caution with that and go 100 feet, um, you know, more than 100 feet so that they're safer. But the FMCSA is very specific. So you could get, get it, you're being in, it would be a violation if you did it around the rest of the vehicles. So basically what I was told was is that... Is it you have to be at least 100 feet or no more than 100 feet? It's 100 feet. So it has to be, if you're 98 feet, then you're a violation. Well, if you are 50 feet, you're in violation. If you are more, the, I would say if you're like 30 feet away from your vehicle because you're trying to accompany or you're trying to accommodate for another vehicle on your side... Um, I don't think people would, I think most people would just put it 10 feet from your vehicle. Because what the point, the thing that I was told was that when emergency services gets there, they're probably going to put out their own. Right. So you do your, they're going to put their stuff out. You do you. Right. And they'll come and do everybody else. That's the part that's so frustrating. Yeah. And I can see it must be just a, a nightmare for people because, okay, if 98 feet is all right, is 95 all right? Is 90 okay? Where's the cutoff point? Well, you either and have to get a... every enforcement person is going to measure it differently. So that's where you end up with one state that is a disaster and another state that's fine. I don't know why they don't just clarify these things. Well, one of the things that they say is that it's 100 feet or 30 paces. And, they, and a pace, I think, is about 30 inches. So they say paces. But one I read somewhere that someone suggested that you go to a track and actually measure out what 100 feet is as you pace. Yeah, how many paces is it for you? Yeah, because my pace is not the same as your pace. Well, but at the same my time... My pace is pretty short. I'd have to take giant steps. But people have different length paces depending on how fast they're walking or mm -hmm. how agitated they are. I mean, there are certainly times when you are taking big steps and times where you're taking small steps. I think that my suspicion is that as long as it's far enough away that it's actually warning other people, then they're not going to go, oh, you only did it 95 feet. They're not going to do that. No, the issue then is not so much about always about enforcement, but then it comes down to what happens in the inevitable lawsuit afterwards. If somebody can say that you were not following the regulations because you didn't have it spaced appropriately, then somebody's going to scream about negligence, blah, 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 blah. Well, I think that's up to the carriers. Yeah. I mean, the regulation is that. The hundred. I mean, there's a, a few different variations for if you're on a hill or on a curve, but it's basically you have to be able to be seen. Mm. You have to be seen at night. You have to be seen in the day. You have to be seen from, you know, a long distance away so that other people are not going to be involved in the accident. Um, so that was only one of the places where you had uh, problems getting... That was a big and... one. That was a that was one of the major ones that... Well, wasn't there something near the end of the process, the... Uh report and document oh, thing? Oh, yeah. Well, I think is I went back and forth on this. Do you, re, do you report it to your carrier and call 911 and do all of that first? Or was secure the scene and report or the order of those? Are... No, it goes stop. Yeah. So stop and make sure you're okay and and clarify your thoughts, basically, and stay calm. That's a big part of it, is that you don't want your drivers to be blaming somebody else, mm -hmm. accepting responsibility. You want them to be as professional as possible. So a lot of that content is about how you remain professional in the face of someone accusing you of things. Yeah, people are going to be freaking guilty. out. Feeling guilty. Yeah, having your own stress, your own uh, distress as well. So I talked about, so that's the first step is stop. And then the next one is secure, which is those two steps across the board. Everybody is saying mm -hmm. you have to stop and you have to secure. So you can't leave the scene of the right. accident, even if nobody else is hit, if it was just an obstacle. But then you get to the reporting and the documentation. Reporting is calling, notifying people. So you want to notify your, your carrier, your insurance, adjust, insurance adjuster, if necessary, Call 911 or emergency services. And then it, there's a fourth step, which is document, which is basically write out your report and take a lot of pictures of the scene. And in the 10 steps that people have, often those two are really muddy. 
So it took me a while to sort of figure out, you know, when you would do each. And I kind of realized after the fact that, yeah, you're going to do all your documentation kind of at the end. You're not going to try, you're not going to document this. You're not going to take a whole bunch of pictures and then call 911. That's yeah. probably ridiculous. You call 911, then write it out while you're waiting for them to arrive or something. Yeah, you call, well, you do everything up until emergency services arrive, you know, police arrive, whatever, whoever is going to arrive. You've, you've um, secured the scene, so you've put out your... You've put out your stuff. You've made sure that anybody who's injured is helped. And then you do the documentation. But you have to make sure that you take pictures before and die and draw a diagram of the accident scene before everybody hauls off. the Like if there's any towing to be done or if mm-hmm. you move the vehicles, then uh, you have to do it. You have to make sure you do it before that happens. You don't want all the vehicles to be towed off and you're like, oh, I didn't take any pictures. You take pictures of the tow truck moving your vehicle <laughs> yeah, out of the way. Yeah, not very helpful. Not helpful, no. Wow. So there's a lot of different things that, and this is the true in almost every single course that I do. See, uh, commercial drivers have a whole lot of stuff to remember. Yeah. They just, there are so many bitsy little details that they have to remember, and accident scene is no different. And I think that um, what a lot of good carriers do is have a lot of cheat sheets. And that's one of the things that they recommend. And the things that I've read, it's one of the things that they recommend and that, they, that you do for your drivers is have a laminated sheet that, ba- that yeah. they keep with their accident kit. Which is the driver manual, basically, or yeah. the binder of all the stuff they need. Because, yeah, that's for accident. But then there's other things where they need other cheat sheets um, for other situations. So Well, for, for a collision, it probably should be close to the accident kit or in the accident kit. Right. And that, that accident kit has to be sort of refreshed every time that you have you have an incident um, the other thing that drivers should have is a first aid kit and having CPR first aid is a benefit as well as, um, like things like a blanket and a shovel Right. blanket for sure. I mean, I remember, well, I don't remember this, but when I had my car, I had a nasty car accident when I was younger. And that was one of the things that someone had a blanket. And it was February, so it wasn't, it was February 14th. Mm. And so it was pretty cold and uh, someone covered me up. Mm-hmm. But that, but you, you know, not everybody travels with those. Um, the, so having, having sort of emergency supplies, because it's not only for when you're in a collision, mm-hmm. but a lot, of, uh, a lot of drivers actually help out. I mean, the whole Highway Angel program is a, is based on that help drivers or you know will help when mm-hmm. there's a when there's a problem and then or when there's another accident and having those having that equipment available is going to be a really good thing yeah well it's funny uh, this is another one of those examples of something that probably everybody goes through everybody covers in their orientation um, everybody talks about but yet the whole reason we're doing this course was really at the request of our insurance partners who were saying, please put together something so that there's standardized information out there for drivers because there's so much ambiguity, there's so much misinformation, people get into so many trouble, so many problems that it causes so much trouble for the insurers when they have to go and deal with the aftermath of this thing. Um, so... And it ended up not being a really long course. It's going to end up being a little more than a half hour long. Not even. Well, it'll probably be 30 pages roughly. Um, but, you know, you've got all these things like the stuff you have to do before you go. You know, it's not always mm-hmm. about just what happens when somebody crashes into somebody else. It's what do you do before you leave so that you're ready in that situation? What happens, you know, right away when it's in you're in the middle of it? And what happens afterwards? And there's so much misinformation or uh, uh, uncertainty out there that you end up doing all of this research on something that you would think should be fairly straightforward uh, and should be fairly well documented. But 
I can totally see why people are requesting that course. I mean, we haven't even got into the whole issue of that thing at the end, the exoneration card. Oh, the the exoneration card. I... I could not believe that there was such a thing. I didn't even know that, that you know, because I can see witness cards, right? You mm-hmm. want to get the name and address of people who witnessed yeah. the accident. Totally understandable. But, okay, backing up a little bit, what they say or what everybody says is that drivers should not speak to anybody. They should not admit fault. They should not apologize so that fault can be assigned to them. They should not blame anybody else. They should just keep that whole thing like completely objective as much as possible. They shouldn't even say, I hit her. Yeah, like, just in step terms away of, from the fact that something happened. Yeah. Just um, very uh, methodical stepping through the things that need to be done. But they... Um, what they say is that if you can get someone, if you if someone says it's their fault, get them to sign an exoneration card. And I thought, oh, okay. I don't know if I, me personally, I don't feel good doing, I wouldn't feel good doing that at all. And one of the things that I, I did get some feedback from a carrier who said they shouldn't be hassling them to fill out an exoneration card but if they do believe that the accident is their it is their fault and they say so to you then getting and then when they do fill out an exoneration card most of the time it's not contested like it's not Mm. you know it's not used later on however I do think that if someone wanted to contest that exoneration card they probably could based on the fact that if you're doing it at the scene you're under duress yeah i in i but and also pressuring people to sign anything like even a witness card pressuring is just going to make you look bad like you as the driver look bad so there's a lot of that in the course is like be careful of bullying like looking like you're bullying people yeah. or looking like you're harassing people looking angry looking like you're gonna pick pick a fight well you're you want to take the high road because you're the professional driver right. so you're the basically the professional on scene uh, you want to model that behavior mm-hmm. and demonstrate that professionalism by being calm by being objective not blaming if, people not freaking out even if you think that you're being treated unfairly yeah. um you're Be the sub- highway angel Pretty much. I mean, that's kind of the goal is that you can be as helpful to people as possible so you're seen as the good person in the situation. So if Mm -hmm. somebody is trying to pick a fight with you, do not engage, even if they started it. If they're saying awful things about you to the police officer, don't start arguing with them while the police officer is doing their interview Mm -hmm. because that's just not going to help. It's not going to make you look good. No, and if... You look like you could be, if you look like you are angry or any any other negative emotion that looks like, makes you look more like a perpetrator, you are going to get, that is going to be what, what's, what people right. say about you. So all the witnesses are going to say, well, that driver was really mad and he was being pretty belligerent and he was, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, the other thing about that is you figure like everything these days gets caught on video at some point. So and out of context video, too. Well, but even like so many of these accident kits are all paper based and they've got like these disposable cameras still in them. They're like relics of the 90s. But that's not how the world works now. Everybody's capturing everything on their cell phone video. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to recognize that. So if you're getting statements and you can get them on video, it's probably better than writing them on paper. But at the same time. If you're jumping around because you're freaking out and mad and stuff like that, somebody else is likely to capture that on video. And for sure, they're going to try and paint you in a bad light as a result. So, yeah, it's all it's so many things that a driver has to remember and to stay on top of. So and to stay calm and professional when you're, you know, because when you are in a car accident or if you have a near miss, your first response is fight or flight, right? You have that adrenaline going through and it's like, oh my God. And so the commercial driver is doing that as well because Mm -hmm. you can't help it. That's what your body naturally does. 
um, and the passenger vehicle, or if you hit another, whatever, the other driver is having that too. So you have to remember that you have to be better than just the regular driver, no matter mm-hmm. what. And it's... Uh, well, it's also tricky because it's not something that people encounter on a regular basis. So I can see this being a course that uh, companies have their drivers renew on an annual basis because they're not getting in an accident on an annual basis, hopefully. So that's a good idea. Can we suggest that in the? Yeah, we can put a default uh, renewal as a, a year or two years or something like that, uh, and then they can change it on their own. But it does seem like something that should be refreshed regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that. Uh, Again, for a course that's not all that long, it's sure an adventure for you to figure out all of the details. And it looks like we've got it all sorted out now, and you've got consensus from all of the experts on what they want people doing. Well, back to your point that the insurance companies wanted one of these courses, I've never had such an easy time getting reviewers. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, they're not so busy, but it's the course that they want. Yeah. To and they're, yeah. oh, we're going to pass it around other people as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Jeez. So that's... Uh, and I've also got a photo shoot booked. Yeah, so I that's saw that. Good. So that's uh, um, speeding towards completion. So early May, that should be done and out. And did that uh, make you feel so much better? Yeah. <laughs> Although you had the photo shoot booked for like 7.30 in the morning Oh, yes, it is. Because, uh, well, we are doing a photo shoot with Larway Transportation, which is... Thank you, Larway. Yes, thank you so much, Larway, um, who's making me, you know... Well, Kathy is really good. Kathy Labatt, who's the um, owner, she's really good. She said, well, if you want to come on Thursday morning, we're doing a photo shoot like we're doing a sunrise photo shoot, you know, so that you have a nice mm. back background to your pictures, that kind of thing. So they're getting photography, they're getting professional photography done anyway. Oh. So do you want to come then? That's why it's seven in the morning because okay. they're doing it at sunrise. <laughs> well, I better hope that it's sunny on Thursday. <laughs> I imagine that they've checked the forecast. I don't know. I, I assume that if it's not sunny, then they're not going. Yeah. They'll probably push it. But I can still... They, she also said, you know, if you can be ready to go at eight at our facility, then you could do that too. But I thought it would be better well, to be do great. it on the side, more on the highway thing, mm-hmm. because then you have the whole highway um, background. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so oh, that's, that be really cool. that's what that was. That, yeah. Well, well, it should be cool, except for the fact that I'm getting up at probably 530-ish. To get up to Barry, I've had to do that many times to catch flights and things. So yeah, the and many three of our in customers do that every day. So I know. We don't have a lot to complain about. Uh, yeah, so those lazy techies that don't want to be up early. I know. So we just stay up from the night before. <laughs> <laughs> in the old days when we were younger, that's what we would have done. Yep. Yeah, you yep. go to bed at three or four in the morning anyway. Might as well just stay up. Man, you cannot do that when you're old. No, you cannot do you that. Cannot once do you've it. Had once you've had kids in the school system, you oh, yeah, then you're done. So, well, that's quite an adventure that you've had um, mm-hmm. through April. Well, I've had a similar set of adventures through April with my own investigation and digging and planning and organizing. One of the things that was on my plate when I came back from the uh, the TCA convention was to basically get our internal processes organized in a little bit of a different way, particularly around the development side of things. We have because always... Because we've, we've got a lot more staff. Yeah. So we've had a... We, we don't have a huge development team, but we added some people, um, added a, sort of a bunch of people in one, uh, one group all in February. And now that they're coming up to speed and getting ready to go, we realize that we need to sort of reorganize the way we do things. Now... Because they'll have their own opinions on things, Well, they have their own opinion on things. But the thing about about, um, software development is there is as many different standardized methodologies for doing it as there are individual developers, I think. So you kind of have to pick a particular methodology and get everybody on board to do it. And everyone follows this process and you work on it a particular way. And what's different about the software development, or particularly the way that we do it, compared to things like course development, is that 
in course development or in the sort of trucking world, the transportation world, it's very much project-based. So you know what you're going to do. You start it, you know, with a course, you have a title, you do the research, you build it, you test it, Mm -hmm. it goes out there and then it goes live and sort of the project is done. And in the shipping world, it's the same kind of thing. You You show up somewhere, you pick up the load, you deliver it, project is finished. In the uh, the development world uh, for a software as a service product, which is sort of our main business, the back end of our system, it doesn't really work that way because there is an endless list of uh, things that people want changed, which may be uh, functional enhancements, maybe sort of fairly small things where people want little changes here and there, or you realize that you need to clarify something. And they may be larger things, which are more of a traditional project where you've got to spend some time uh, putting together your requirements, designing it, coding it, going through the regular sort of set of iterations to uh, uh, to refine it and get all the bugs out, and then you push it live. So you've got a combination of those larger projects and you've got this sort of ongoing set of little enhancements. And then there's bug fixes as well, because the more people use things, the more they uncover weird situations that don't work well. There's always bugs in software, no matter what you do. So you've got... Well, a- that's funny, because it's kind of my experience as well, is that I came from... I came... My background is you do this first, this second, then you follow a methodology... But in addition, you have all those updates. Yeah. Well, yeah. That we had never experienced before. So while you're building a new course, it's very much a project. Mm -hmm. But you never end that project because once it goes live, it kind of settles down into a holding pattern uh, through normal usage. But then just when you're least ready to handle it, some government agency decides to change the regulation or you decide that you want to do some technical change or you realize that you could change the scenario to be a little bit more effective or something like that. So there's always these sort of ongoing updates. So if you've got a development team, you've got to have some way of organizing that to stay on top of it. You could spend all your time doing these big, um, exciting projects, sort of the big new functions, big new features. Um, and that's great. It gives you stuff to market. You know, the marketing side is very happy about that. And it's brand new functionality. Um, and it's, it's fun to do. But then you would end up never fixing those incremental things. And at the same time, you can't just spend all your time doing all the incremental things because customers that are using it every day, certainly they're happy about that. The incremental things make their lives a lot better. But it... Um, it kind of hobbles the product over time because you don't get those big new things that open up new areas of functionality. So we have to find a way to balance that. So there's a few sort of common methodologies now that people use in the development world um, that are really all end up coming out of Toyota's manufacturing model. So the lean or agile development methodologies all largely um, originated with Toyota in one way or another. And then they've been applied to software development. They've been modified. So um, if you're doing sort of traditional agile or you're doing scrum-based, the one that we've uh, landed on is something called Kanban, which is a a pull kind of methodology where there's always a task list and you go and grab the top thing off the list every time, uh, which may be a bug fix, maybe an enhancement, or maybe a giant project. So... um, For us, that works better, but there's so many different ones out there that if you're going to sort of reorganize your business, you got to look through them, you got to spend some time evaluating them, thinking about how you work, uh, talking to the development team, um, comparing notes, comparing ideas. And then when you settle on a methodology, that's just the beginning. (laughs) Because, (laughs) you know, I settled on a methodology. It didn't take me very long. It maybe took me a couple of days of sort of thinking about it and talking to people. But then, of course, you've got to have some tools for managing that. You're, you're not keeping track of these things on spreadsheets or through email or anything like that. You've got to have an integrated tool for doing that. Um, and there is as many different tools as there is days in the week or days in the month for sure because, you know, you do a search on it and you immediately get a hit list of 30 or 40 different things, all of which claim to be the leading tool in that product. It's amazing how many leaders there are in any given field. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of, and le- all of them that leading e-learning LMSs. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we had to go through, and really what happens is you have to go and create a trial in these things and run through a process and sort of go through it end to end in a smaller kind of microcosm version of that so you can see how it's going to work with your team. 
Well, I've now done that with about seven different tools. So I'm constantly being bombarded right now by all of the daily the sales notifications. Well, not just the sales follow-ups, but all of the product notifications. Because I went in and created little projects or little tasks in them to see what the process was like. Oh, well, now you're being day, reminded? Hey, you've got a task. Hey, you didn't finish this yesterday. Ugh. Don't forget to assign this. Plus all of the sales stuff of stay on top of it and, you know, uh, learn about this methodology, learn about the features and, hey, I'm the sales rep. Can I help? All of those kind of things. So um, it's been a little bit of an onslaught in my mailbox. But at the same time, it's really kind of interesting for me to see how all of these other products do their sales cycle. So which one of them are harassing me? Which one of them, uh, which ones are being more calm about it? Which ones are providing me value and sort of helping me uh, understand the methodology and the best practices as it applies to our business, all of those kind of things? Which ones uh, have got things like free webinars and documentation and all of those ones? And that actually, that's really helped uh, because there's definitely some of them that have very little information out there, but they do have a sales rep that calls me every day. And there's other ones that are a little bit more um, subtle. They're a little less pushy. And they're, you know, here's some educational material. Here are some best practices. Um, and then from there, you can sort of figure out what works. And then there's other ones that are more about, you know, let's see more of a consulting approach of let's see what you're doing and what's going to work for you. So I've, uh, I've pretty much nailed it down to the particular tool that we want. So that... Um, giant headache is over. So two of the three steps are finished. And now the third one, which may actually be the biggest one, which is actually populating all of that data into the tool. So that's my next project is to figure out how to organize it and to get all of that stuff in there, uh, get everybody set up, and um, at the same time, this prioritize is sounding, development. This is sounding a whole lot like what happens when people roll out Carrier's edge to their drivers. Yes, well, and, <laughs> and figure out what I'm going to put in there. I know, it's the I'm same thing that customers go through it. when they're signing up, when they're starting e-learning, and it's really the same with any um, any software implementation, any new technology I implementation that is really based on a particular set of business processes ends up kind of being the same way. So yeah, we go through it with our customers. Um, that have to figure these things out. And it isn't just as simple as signing up for our service, even though the service is a fairly cheap um, add-on for them. It's all of the other things around it that will make it a success or a failure. And if they're going to get somewhere, that's the stuff that they have to put time into. And I recognize that that's sort of the headache in a lot of cases. And it, uh, it just happens that uh, coincidentally, the webinar for April was how to roll out online training, online training, which is all about um, figuring out who's doing what, getting your plan together, getting yep. the data populated. So, yeah, so, so I've been feeling uh, your collective pain <laughs> going What's through your, it myself. Um, when are you doing that, that tomorrow? Well, I want to this week get the tool. Um, no, 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 the, the webinar. Oh, I did it a few weeks ago. It was the April webinar. Oh, you're doing the best of both worlds. Next webinar is, yeah, about combining classroom and online training. Okay. So, yeah, this week is finishing getting the uh, the house in order as far as development projects. Um, so it's a, it's a headache. Every development team goes through it. Um, usually what happens, actually, in most companies, we're a little bit different this way. Most companies, they have a development manager that's really got a particular methodology that they like, and they kind of impose that on everybody. So uh, I know... Well, you're imposing a methodology. Well, to a certain extent, I am. Yeah. But we've been fairly lax in that. Um, and we've sort of grown up organically, just the way we develop new features, because we're always trying to put out new things and fix bugs and do sort of project type stuff. We have kind of new releases of our um, system that go out every week, basically. Um, whereas in other models, people will do it much more project-based. So it'll be like a quarterly release or something mm. like that. Um, and that didn't really work for us. So we've sort of grown up in this thing organically. And now I'm trying to find something that is going to give us the stability and scalability that we need without forcing everybody to totally change the way they work. So yeah, normally in development companies, uh, there'll be a development manager who comes in and says, we're doing this, and they build the whole company around it. But 
uh, as is often the case, we have taken a different approach. We've come in backwards. Well, and it's sort of grown out of what the industry wants. Well, it's funny because I was saying to, uh, we had a staff meeting a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this, this whole let's, we're, we're getting this, this product to help us with the development cycle. And one of the things I said was that we've been, we're like the oldest startup ever. In, in like many the, ways, we've kind of been in startup mode for yeah, yeah. quite a long time. And, and that's because the trucking industry was in startup mode with e-learning as well. And yeah. we didn't know. And I don't think the trucking industry knew what they wanted. Yeah, for so sure. So once we, we've sort of, I think that we've kind of ended our startup phase. We know what we're doing. Trucking knows what it's doing. And so yeah, now we're just implementing it, it. And uh, yeah, we've sort of... Yeah, we've been very we fluid and very fits. flexible uh, because we're kind of responding to customer requests and what people want and things like that. And so, what the industry is doing. And the, as the industry is go, uh, growing on its own and, and developing all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's sort of the industry. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the industry is at a point now, which is sort of a real uh, a milestone in the adoption of any technology is when you hit the 10% adoption rate. So... Um, the normal rule or the normal standard, people refer to it as the S-curve or other things. The, uh, Is it like the tipping point? Is it like almost the tipping, the tipping point? point? Yeah, okay. it's kind of like the tipping point. So when you hit 10% adoption, that's when it's really ready to take off. For whatever reason, um, once you get 10% of any industry doing one particular thing, it starts to really take off from there. So the time to go from 0 to 10% adoption ends up being about the same as the time to go from 10 to 90% adoption. So, you know, we're at that point where there's about, as far as we can tell, looking at other vendors uh, and their customer um, numbers and the number of people that build things on their own and little bits and pieces here and there, it looks like about 10% of the North American trucking industry is using e-learning one way or another which means that we're right at that tipping point where mm-hmm. we're about to sort of head out, get out of startup mode and get to sort of mainstream yep. know, with it. And, and I think that's kind of certainly our experience through Best Fleets is that it is kind of a mainstream thing now. Um, most of the companies that are making it through to the finals on the Best Fleets program are doing something online. Yep. Um, you know, So we know that it is it is heading in that direction. So... Yeah, so we're kind of uh, continuing to try and adapt and and sort of follow along on the same path that uh, it's going to scale very quickly. And so we need to be ready to scale very quickly. And we also, I didn't want to shift to doing quarterly releases or even monthly releases where everybody is sort of scrambling to hit a, a, a target of a certain feature set and then you push those live. Uh, I much prefer the way we do it now, which is a weekly push. Um, so if somebody Kind of like got, an app. Yeah, I guess Because in some apps ways, do that too. They apps have, will have a lot more frequent updates and you don't Facebook even necessarily has a weekly, know them. Yeah, Facebook, Facebook has a weekly push. Yeah. Uh, that's scheduled. Well, it allows think there's you to a get, lot of other ones. It allows that, you to get bug fixes out much yeah. more quickly. But at the same time, a lot of the ideas that people have for enhancement suggestions aren't really that difficult or that complicated to implement. It's just a matter of somebody using it, you know, that sort of outsider with fresh eyes looking at it and saying, you know, this kind of works, but it would be better if it did this and this. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's not hard to do. And then, you know, 10 minutes of coding or even some cases maybe an hour of coding is not that uh, difficult. Run it through the testing and it can go live. Well, that thing can be out there and people can be benefiting from it soon rather than waiting for a quarterly bill. Yeah, so, I much prefer the way so, we do it too. Yeah, we have uh, we've found a set of tools and a methodology. Uh, uh, we are ad- adapting uh, our processes to those as we need to, and and it's nice them. that we can we have a very quick adaption rate, mm-hmm. if you want to call it adaptation rate. Adaptation adapt. Yeah. I don't. Oh, wait, is adaption? No, adaption is not a word. I no. just made it up. Yeah. Okay, so adaptation. Again, my brain is thinking faster. And uh, because when you uh, compare us to much larger companies and the rate of change that happens, 
Uh, we did a lot of work with Suncor and just to update their flash player. Mm. That was like two years. Yeah. Yeah. Because they just had lockdown uh, desktops yeah. and things like that. So, so yeah. you basically have to propose it, have 15 meetings. Well, and it's kind of funny that our experience with technology adoption in the trucking industry, in some ways, it is a very slow industry to adopt new technologies. There's things that are just being adopted now that have been in other industries for years or decades. That's in our some secret cases. is we just have but, experience in other and other industries. But at the same time, there's sometimes where you need to move really fast. So if people see something and you know, because it is new, they'll look at it and say, oh, yeah, I kind of like it, but I'd like it to do A, B, and C. Well, you don't want to wait, you know, two years to release that. You want to get A, B, and C ready yes. as quick as possible. So, yeah, you got to move. Well, I guess that was one of the uh, the, the points from uh, uh, Jim Collins in his Great by Choice book is move slow when you can and fast when you have to. So you got to be able to move quickly at some point, but also move slow and, and sort of do all of the preparatory work so that you can sprint in those cases when you need to. So that's been uh, quite a uh, an interesting month for me, I guess disruptive because I'm disrupting all of our normal processes and everything that we do. And you made but everybody do new status reports. I changed the way everybody does status reporting. Uh, yes, we've uh, changed we've the had, way we do file sharing. We had to do a little things. bit of change management because there was a little pushback. Yeah, we had to do some change management. <laughs> yeah, we had, just like the old driver who says he doesn't want to do online training. Yes, yeah. we had the old developer who says he didn't want to change status reports or just uh, uh, try sort of the silent protest of I'm just going to keep using the old template. Yeah, and we had to say, um, no, we're not using that one anymore. So, oh dear, I don't remember <laughs> but, who that was, but well, that's okay. Was, and and it was basically that the new one needed some things changed. Yeah. So it's still it's a work in but progress. But that's a good lesson, right? Yeah. Because you know, just because you've made a change and people are unhappy with it, doesn't mean you have to stop the change. It just means you have to. Well, you figure out what the issue Adapt is. the change. Yeah. Which is a correct usage of the word adapt. Mm-hmm. I didn't make it into adaption. <laughs> It's like number two that I've done that it, where I've used a word that doesn't exist. Well, it could be kind of like that uh, uh, Wisconsin accent. We are adapting this. Adapting? Yeah, Fargo style. Yeah. So that's what uh, my April has been up to, and uh, I'm very excited to see where this goes. So I think sort of the benefit on the customer side is that this will allow us to crank a whole bunch of new features uh, very quickly and things that people are asking about. Um, and uh, things that we know we want to build uh, build out farther. You know, we had a big release in February when we added all of those survey functions, and I've got a couple of other projects like that that uh, we now can sort of focus on and also keep going with the incremental things and the bug fixes and all of that sort of stuff. So that's very exciting for us. So that's been my, um, my April. Something else that uh, came up, I guess a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, that was a, a question that came in that sort of got me thinking of something that uh, is kind of worth discussing here. Um, we've got a new PR company that we started with in April, and they're doing fantastic work. But as part of their ramp up, they kind of look at all of the different things that we do, and they look at our website, and they ask a lot of questions about why do you do it the way you do, and why is this better and that sort of thing. And one of the questions that they came up with is, uh, or one of the things that they were asking about is, is there any research to support our belief that interactive education is better than the video style? <laughs> um, you know, and they said... Just a touch. <laughs> well, and he said, um, you know, I, I think it is, you know, my, my gut says it is and I feel like it is, but I'm wondering if there's research that we can point to as part of our marketing efforts. Well, and just of a course, little yeah, bit. There's, yeah, there's tons of information about it. And so I started sort of writing up my answer and pointing to some different places, um, research points um, that, that show that. But it sort of opened up the whole issue of active versus passive learning, which is really the two main things that they're talking about. So um, if you're watching, you know, if you're sitting watching TV, you're, even if you're watching a documentary, it's a very passive uh, learning experience. You're not really engaging directly. 
um, somebody is serving out content to you in a specific way on a specific schedule and you don't have a lot of control over it. Um, However, I would argue that it's not necessarily completely passive when you're watching something that's entertaining. Yes, you're Entertainment is used to engage someone, yeah, to increase like their, that. yeah, to increase their um, attention. So you're going to add something funny so that people laugh mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, they're going to have a little surge of adrenaline and have a little bit more ability to concentrate. It also breaks it up. However, that is not necessarily when you're doing something educational, like yeah. so, say you're talking about hazmat regulations. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a tough job. Yeah, well, in, in that case, that sort of passive learning, um, and that's the, sort of the traditional instructional model. You sit in a lecture. That's passive learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it leads to something that's also known as surface learning, which is basically that you don't have a very deep connection to the content because it is passive, because you're not actively engaged or the learner is not actively engaged in the education then they tend to not have as deep of a connection to it, and they may not have any personal connection to it at all. So if you've ever had that experience where you're cramming for an exam and you go into the exam and you do pretty well, and a month and you've later forgotten you everything. can't remember anything, yeah. or uh, yeah, you know, six months later you have no clue about any of the content, well, that's surface learning. You kind of learned it on the surface enough to get through um, what you needed to get through, but there isn't really that sort of deep connection or that deep understanding of stuff. There so. is also, um, in in the same vein as passive learning, lecture style is the type of learning that is the highest, it's the hardest. So uh, I can't remember what they're called, but there's there's different levels of learning and the one that works the best in sort of a workplace environment is concrete learning. And concrete learning is more of the active style. But the fourth level, the highest level that you sort of have in terms of lecture and university and people just talking about things where you can't do anything yourself, that's the highest level of learning. You have to have certain skills mm. in order to you be the able most to... difficult level. Y- yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. it It is... Um, it's tough because you have to understand how you remember yourself. Mm. So you have to be you have to be pretty advanced as a student, which is why, you know, you're in university, someone's lecturing you with 300 people in the room and you have to get enough information out of that to write an exam, which is basically the whole well, theory of a course. Go, you have to go and create an active learning experience of your own. You have to find a yes. way to connect to take responsibility for it and go and develop that expertise and that deep learning on your own. And you have to figure out how to take notes. Do you take notes? Do you use a recorder? Are you allowed to record? You know, and then some maybe listening to it back is going to help. Maybe writing notes is going to help. For me, writing notes is almost... I can't learn anything unless I'm taking notes or drawing on something, but I often don't look at those notes after. Mm. So it's part of the learning process. But anyway, you you have to, you don't want to have to make people create their own way of learning something. Mm-hmm. When you are looking well, at that third world, stage. You're probably not going to. You don't have time. Well, I'm just thinking in the workplace, they're not, it's a very different motivation. Yes. In a lot of cases. Now, I guess it's different if you are in the workplace and it's a aspirational type training course. It's a career thing that you really want to do, uh, you really want to get. Then, yeah, people will likely put in that effort to turn it into uh, an effective learning experience on their own. But when it's something that they see as primarily part of the job and they see it as the company's responsibility to give it to them, they're not necessarily going to put that effort in to create a, a, an engaging or an active learning experience on their own. It needs to be provided for them. Yes, they're going to sit there and wait for you to do, you know, make them do something. Which is why um, a lot of the, the passive learning stuff is less effective. So in general research, passive learning is much less effective and not just in terms of depth of understanding, but the length of retention, of knowledge retention, is way less 
uh, active learning experiences have three to four times the duration of, of knowledge retention because well, it's you, so much deeper. Yeah, if you look at it in terms of, I don't know, uh, programming your VCR. Oh, mm -hmm. we don't do that anymore. Uh, like selecting something for to record on your, on your uh, DVR. So if you do you want to listen to those instructions and not and maybe look at somebody doing it or do you want to hold on to the remote control yourself and when someone tells you to do something you do it mm -hmm. so that's the active engagement right. and most people are going to be like give me that remote i'm going to do it myself when you're yeah. trying to because you and i have this thing a lot where you start doing it for me and explaining as you go and i'm like no yeah. let me do it myself and when i am showing um, other people, like in, in, in a work environment, when I'm showing other people how to do something on, uh, like basically in Endicott, which is our course development system, I was showing someone how to do some edits, our customer service representative, Nina. And I don't show her. I tell her what to right. do. So she has... I mean, I, I watch, she shares her screen with me. I watch what she's doing and I basically say, no, go to your upper left, go, no, you mm -hmm. do this, you do this. And I also provide her with a list of steps. So she has the list of steps written. So she has a visual, she has visual cues. She also has, she's also practiced doing it herself. Mm -hmm. So even if she doesn't remember all of it, she'll remember generally that's something, oh, it's, I think it's sort of in this area, or even at the basic level of, yes, I can do this, or no, I can't do this. This mm -hmm. is something Jane has to do. So, you know, she's going to remember that way more than me just talking at her and showing it to her. Well, what uh, I found interesting was sort of thinking this through as I was explaining it, um, you know, some of the research stuff. Um, and kind of summarizing it for our PR people and talking about sort of the differences and that whole thing about surface learning and, and why it's important, certainly in the safety world, for people to have a deep understanding, to get that deep learning because they need context and they need to be able to apply learning in different contexts. That's critical in the safety world that we deal with. You know, if you're just watching a video of somebody doing uh, a particular Blackers. thing, yeah, in one particular context, they're going to, at best, know how to do it in that one particular context. But that's not what you want from drivers. You want them to have that deeper level of understanding so that they can apply context to it and use that knowledge in different scenarios and be sort of more broadly effective, more broadly engaged in it as time goes on and maybe make some decisions for themselves like, oh, okay, in this situation, I actually need to do it like this to achieve the same outcome. Um, rather than just, well, the steps are one, two, three, so I'm just going to do those three steps and that's it. Which goes back to your tie-down example at the beginning, which right. is they just put on a lot of tie-downs just and to actually, make sure. Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about with the accident scene things, is that they need to not just have six steps. They need to understand why those steps exist um, and uh, understand the importance of them and the desired outcome of those so that when that weirdo situation comes up, they can... Uh, adjust accordingly and still get that same outcome. So, and it's important that um, I like steps. I think that steps are like you know five or under, as far as I'm concerned. Because other than that, you know, after you get to seven or eight, like people stop remembering. Your short-term mm -hmm. memory just doesn't work um, past there. It's not designed to. So. I like to keep it short and I like to have steps because you can group information into steps. If you explain what a step is in someone else's brain, they will be able to sort of group all of that information that goes into that one thing. And then later on, you can just remember the one thing. And I'm not against steps at all. I, I love steps as well. I'm just saying that you need to understand why the steps and the context yeah, and yeah. the application of that. But that's what I mean it. is that if you, you have the steps and you understand the context, then all of that information is in that package. Mm -hmm. But you have to give them all that information. And I think that's why our courses are a little bit longer than, you know, the 15 minutes is because we don't just say, here are the steps. 
I could say, here are four steps when you have an accident. Here are the four things you have to do. Mm-hmm. But I don't do that. Well, I that's talk just ab- going to be surface learning. Exactly. Well, and that kind of took me to something else that I was thinking about. That I, And I hadn't really made this connection before. But the difference between the passive and the active learning, where the passive learning sort of the expectation is all the information is provided and the person just absorbs or consumes it, and that's yeah. it. Whereas with active learning, the expectation is that the learner gets actively involved in their own education. They're, they are an, an active participant. participant. So that's very different because, and, and what really sort of uh, stuck out for me or jumped out as I was thinking about it is the passive learning is really kind of patronizing for a professional to just say, we don't trust you to have any sort of control over your learning. Here is exactly what the content is. You just sit there and absorb it. Whereas the active stuff is a little bit more, I don't know, it it assumes that the person is an intelligent professional and can be making some informed decisions about what's going on by saying, okay, I'm going to become an active participant in this learning. Um, I'm going to make decisions about what things I click on for more information or about how much time I spend on a quiz or how much time I spend thinking about the content on this page. By allowing them to set that pace, it um, it's a little bit more I don't want to say it's more respectful, but it assumes that they're intelligent adults who can be trusted to make some decisions, which, of course, you need them to be trusted to make decisions because they're out on the road with the cargo all the time. And, and required to make decisions. And if you can't trust them to make the decisions in their learning experience, in their education as drivers, how good or you know how much can you trust them with that expensive cargo and expensive truck? So that is something that I hadn't really thought of. Um, anytime that there's sort of been discussion of active versus passive learning. Um, but I think it really applies is that, you know, you want to demonstrate to drivers that you trust them to be intelligent professionals, to do that work. And keeping them involved in the education is just one more way to do that. And of course, it's also part of a more effective experience and all of that stuff, all the things we were just talking about. So I think um, the PR people were asking me sort of a very short answer, and I probably gave them 50 times more than they were after. There's a lot of, well, there's also a really good um, uh, example where if you want to learn something on a computer, like so you want to figure out how to do a uh, um, formula in Excel, you want to make it, you know, you want to add a button or something like that that does something that adds up a column of figures or whatever. You, uh, well, I don't know if everybody does it, but a really good thing to do is basically go look it up and see if someone on the internet knows it and has posted a video, which nine times out of 10, somebody has. And basically you find it, you watch it, you go do it, and then you're done. Mm -hmm. You know how to create a button in Excel or you know how to add up a sum of things or, or whatever. And that's kind of those short little bits of, of learning that are not really what we do. Those are more supporting well, your job. That's like yeah. how to fill out a field on a form. Exactly. But at the same time, I mean, that's a good example because, you know what, I never watch those videos. And, and the Excel one is good because I'm often digging into Excel about how to organize data and filter it and things like that. I don't want to watch a video because the video is going to be four minutes long and it's going to be somebody droning on about something that I don't care about. Yes. Give me the steps. Uh, so I go and I look for a very different, I'll look for somebody who's itemized it. I will go through it myself and do it. I may make my own notes and do it, but I've basically been active in the learning myself. I've said, here's how I want to learn it. And I've, I've you know found a way to do it that suits my learning style. And I end up learning it much better. If I'm watching a video, it's going to be hard for me to sit through that video and now, Wait I'm realizing, for them to stop talking? now I'm realizing why people keep saying, oh, drivers don't want long videos. They don't want long courses. Yeah, I don't either. So No, nobody really wants to unless watch. Unless it's and, engaging. If it's, yeah. Now, if it's an interactive course, and I actually had a chance to look at some courses from uh, one of our partners that uh, we may be adding into our library to supplement some stuff. Their stuff was uh, interactive. It was pretty decent. I didn't have any hard time at all uh, staying engaged with it because I could go at my own pace. I could sort of get involved in it. And I learned the content. I already knew most of the content, but I learned what was in that course and how they'd organized it and structured it. So um, anyway, I found that to be uh, very interesting as sort of opening up 
the whole discussion about a whole different approach to education. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, there's certainly research to support one versus the other in terms of effectiveness. Uh, but uh, it got me thinking about some things. So I think I'm going to probably do a LinkedIn article about that because um, I'm, I'm due to do another one. And that's a good subject to get people thinking about and making sure that they are creating in their own content, creating an active learning experience for their drivers. It'll be way more effective that way. So um, that uh, nearly brings us to the end of the things that I had on the list. The last thing uh, that I had scribbled down was to just sort of um, quickly review what's coming up for us. Um, so you've got your new course uh, that will be coming out very shortly. Very exciting. I'm going to go out to a... Uh... Gonna go out and take pictures at sunrise. A highway center, at yeah, at sunrise. Well, yeah. it won't be sunrise for me. They're taking pictures of the truck, like ah. for their website at sunrise. Cool. I will be there shortly afterwards at Godforsaken hour the uh, morning. Well, speaking of having to go places at Godforsaken hours, uh, the uh, the one event that we've got coming up this month uh, in May is the TCA Safety and Security Division meeting or their safety contest, which once again happens on uh, oh. the long weekend for us here. Okay, uh, cue the complaining. Yes, I'm not a fan of their scheduling. Uh, we have a long weekend in Canada at the same, on the same weekend as the TCA Safety and yes, Security. the week before Memorial Day is a long weekend here, uh, our first long weekend of the summer. So uh, we're always very excited about it, even though it's cold and rains every year. Only like, if you go camping. Yeah, people go if camping you, and if it's you cold go, and rainy No, if you time. specifically yeah. go camping. If I don't plan to go camping, it'll be great. It'll be fine. And since I'm not going to be around, it's going to be a fantastic weekend for everybody else. I'm sure the weather is going to be beautiful. Um, although I'm going to be in Phoenix for that. So chances are good the weather is going to be uh, hot and sunny there. So that mm-hmm. is uh, a, a benefit. Uh, so anybody who is heading to the TCA Safety Conference, uh, I'll look forward to seeing you there. Uh, if you're not planning to go, it is a good event. I gripe about the scheduling of it, but the, uh, the content is good. It's always a good group of people. It's a fairly casual event and a lot of good information coming out of it. Do you know who's speaking? Um Yes, the preliminary agenda is out, um, and I don't recall all of the speakers, but there's some of the best fleets that are there. Um, I believe Melton is speaking, Bison is speaking, um, Interstate is there as well. I know they're part of the uh, organizing committee. Uh, so there's some, oh, Newsbomb is talking, which will be interesting. Jeremy's uh, doing a session there. So some good fleets that have got some, some great things uh, to share. So it's nice to see them uh, having an opportunity to uh, to get out there and talk about that. Um, they also do their safety professional of the year and some other things like that. So it's a good event. I don't think it's very expensive and uh, it's in Phoenix, so it's easy to get to. Outside of the fact that I'm going to burn on my long weekend, uh, I am actually looking forward to it because uh, I love Arizona. I love the desert uh, and it, uh, it should be a good time. And I think that will fill up much of uh, May for us. So... I believe we are done. Anything else on your mind? I'm good. All right. Well, that's the end of another Carrier's Edge podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye. Have a great day.